man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. April 23 edition, PFT PM Draft Week is here. PFT PM Posse out in full force. Follow at PFT PM Posse on Twitter. I have nothing to do with that account other than the fact that I get a kick out of it and I promote it whenever and wherever I can. I thought there were five members of the PFT PM Posse. If following the PFT PM Posse Twitter page is a sign of membership, and it probably isn't, but I'll say that it is, there are 220 people who are zealous, ardent members of the PFTPM Posse. So I thank you for that. There are more people actually listening to the podcast, whether they're in the Posse or not. And the numbers have actually been going up. So my totally authentic and organic and in no way contrived, and I'm not saying that sarcastically, effort of a couple of weeks ago to shut the thing down because I didn't think anyone listening, it actually has resulted in, number one, me realizing people are listening. Number two, more people seem to be listening because they understand that, you know, at some point, if there's something that you like, you need to be loyal to it or it goes away. And number three, more people becoming aware that there's something to listen to. It's a crowded space. I get it. There's a lot of competition for your ears as you drive home from work, as you ride the subway home from work, as you ride a bike, either stationary or a real one, as you're on the treadmill, as you're doing whatever it is that you do when you have earbuds in your ears or audio on, wherever it may be. There's a lot of things you can choose to listen to. Thank you for choosing to listen to my meanderings unrestricted by pretty much anything, including good sense, at the end of each weekday. And I don't want to say it's each weekday. I need to leave myself from a little flexibility. I I don't want to commit to do it every single day. Now, if we get to the point where, you know, it's paying a bill or two, looking for a new grill, if it helps me pay for the new grill... Maybe I can get somebody to sponsor the grill. Maybe I can get the grill manufacturer. Maybe that's the negotiation. I'm negotiating the price right now with the grill manufacturer. Maybe I need to call the guy back and say, hey, I got a deal for you. How about you send me a grill and I mention on the PFTPM podcast every day for, I don't know, all of grilling season, my grill. If it gets me a free grill, what the hell, right? Right? Are you with me? Are you with me? All right. Actually, I'll pay for my grill. But if they want to separately sponsor the website, then, you know, maybe we can do some business. we got to do some business here and get right to it after I waste about five minutes of your time talking about useless shit that you don't want to hear about. But you know what? If you're listening, you know that that happens and you're still listening. So, I don't know. Sorry. Speaking of useless things, the report last week from Adam Schefter. I'm not saying he's useless. Really, I'm not. I'm not. The I'm not. What? What are you looking at? I'm not. The report, useless report from last week, from the useful Adam Schefter, that Tom Brady had yet to commit to playing in 2018, created a bit of a stir until people realized what Schefter was and wasn't saying. And once people realized what he wasn't wasn't saying, the reaction, I think, was, what the hell are you doing? We thought you were useful because it really was 
and is a useless report. And I was happy at first because it meshed with my effort to throw a dart on this possibility that Tom Brady would pull a Barry Sanders and retire unexpectedly. The idea that Brady hasn't declared that he's going to play in 2018, but that people who know him think he's going to play. What did that really tell us? Because there's no reason to really think that Brady would have to say, I declare that I plan to play this year for people to believe he's going to play. That's not the evidence that is dispositive one way or the other on whether or not Brady will play. There's still a chance he decides, screw it, I'm out. But this idea that there's any relevance to Brady saying anything, that's that's useless. Again, I've used that term useless several times now. Here's where it gets interesting. And reporters don't like it when others in the business speculate on sources. It's It makes people uncomfortable because if you don't protect your sources, then people will be unlikely to speak to you. And so we get very nervous. I know I do. Well, Floria heard that one from You just don't want that. You don't want the trail of breadcrumbs to be detected because a lot of times the trail of breadcrumbs is there. A lot of times it's obvious. A lot of times it isn't. But we would prefer as an industry that you pay no attention to the breadcrumbs. We understand there may be some. Please don't notice them. And especially don't notice them if you're also in the business. I guess it's viewed as a breach of etiquette of some sort. Well, you know, I don't give a shit about that stuff, so here we go. Adam Schefter and Don Yee had a business relationship within the past year or two. When Don Yee announced that football league he's starting that is going to provide an alternative to players who would go to college and not get paid to play football and actually get paid, Schefter was announced as having some role with that. And not long after that, Schefter bowed out. But it shows there's something there with Schefter and Yee. Something to the point where, not just, hey, I know this guy and talk to this guy and I call him if I have questions. There's enough of a relationship there. There's enough of a a level of respect slash affinity, fondness, whatever, where they're talking about doing business together and they were doing business together until ESPN said, probably not a good idea for you to be doing business in a setting like this. Especially because ESPN is all in with college football. Here comes this alternative league that is going to suck guys away from college football if it's successful and, you know, actually pay them money to play football. God forbid that guys should get paid money to play football. And so if Schefter's involved in that, may not be good for ESPN. Regardless of whether or not Schefter should or shouldn't be allowed to be involved in it, he knows Yee. So was Yee his source last week? For the idea that Brady hasn't committed to playing in 2018? Did ye know that Schefter was saying that and try to push back? Did ye say, oh, Adam, what the hell are you doing with this useless report? Tom Brady doesn't need to declare to anyone that he's 
playing in 2018. That's not relevant to whether or not he plays. Maybe he decides to retire, but the absence of a commitment, there's no commitment to make. His commitment is implied. Oh, and by the way, he told Jim Gray of Westwood One the day of the Super Bowl he's definitely playing this year. And I know some circumstances have changed, specifically this whole nonsense with why Malcolm Butler didn't play, and there's no explanation for why he didn't play, and maybe there's no good explanation that Bill Belichick could make for any player on that team who may suspect that this was just a Belichickian vendetta against Malcolm Butler for not accepting the best offer that the Patriots made him. And also, you don't want Butler to go be a hero of the Super Bowl, and then the Patriots get backed into the reality of having to sign Butler to a new contract or apply the franchise tender when they've decided not to pay him market value. His market goes up, and the demands go up to keep Butler around. So whatever the reason, whatever the reason, those circumstances may have changed. My point is this. If Schefter is going to use Yee's comment this week on the record, in what capacity did Schefter use Yee's comment last week off the record? Was Yee the one who said, hey, you know what, by the way, Tom hasn't committed to playing this year? Was that the case? Or was Yee one of the people Schefter spoke to who know Brady and believe he's going to play? But apparently Yee wasn't willing or able to go on the record last week and say this is all bullshit, which is what he did this week. And as... Schefter explains this week's report and harmonizes it with last week's report. Here's where the breadcrumbs really come into focus. Here's what I think, based upon this sentence from Schefter's report dated 3.19 p.m. Eastern on Monday. Let me read the whole paragraph. Just last week, multiple sources said they believed, but they didn't know that Brady would return for the 2018 season. All right, one of those sources may very well be Yee. Probably is Yee. Probably makes sense that Schefter would have called Yee. And whatever Yee told him wasn't strong enough to get Schefter not to go with the story that Brady hasn't committed to playing in 2018. That's not from the quote. That's me. Anytime I do that, that's me. Anytime I talk like this, that's from the, except that part. Let's try this again so there's no misunderstanding. And then I'll hold the asides until I'm done. Just last week, multiple sources said they believed but didn't know that Brady would return for the 2018 season. One source even estimated that there was a 75% chance that Brady would be back, which means, of course, that there was a 25% chance he wouldn't be. Okay, here's an aside. I can't believe that last part actually made it to print. It is why in recent weeks it has become a question within the Patriots organization whether Brady would walk away from the game. But Yee tried to dispel this idea Monday. Okay. What he's basically saying is somebody from the Patriots organization told him last week that Tom hasn't committed and they're concerned. That's that's the breadcrumbs. They're plain as day. He's out at his source from last week. Someone with the Patriots. It's a Patriots organizational question that made its way to Schefter. And this this feeds into the speculation from Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston that the Patriots actually put Schefter up to this that Schefter was taking one for the team, literally, the Patriots actually, by floating this goofy, nonsensical concept of Brady not committing to playing in 2018 as a way to get Brady or someone to say, oh, yes, he is. And now Don Yee has said several days later, oh, yes, he is. I still don't think that the absence of a commitment 
has any relevance to whether or not he plays or doesn't play. Now, until Brady says it himself, I mean, what happens if Brady ultimately retires between now and the start of training camp? Will he be harangued by questions about people who say, but Don Yee, Don Yee told Tom, uh, Adam Schefter that, uh, uh, no, the news will be he's retiring. He's not going to get raked over the coals on whether or not mixed signals were sent by his camp or whether what he said back in February to Jim Gray is inconsistent with what he's doing now. Nobody cares about that. All they care about is Tom Brady is unexpectedly retiring. So, on one hand, this is all just noise to fill in a slower time as we wait for the draft. On the other hand, I feel like there's a chance the Patriots went to Shefty and said, hey, Shefty, you know, we're starting to get a little worried about this. Is there a way that you could put it out there that Tom Brady really hasn't said to us that he's definitely playing this year, we'd kind of like to know. How about you put that out there so he'll tell us somehow, some way that he's going to play this year. Now, in that regard, it becomes very intriguing. But the story then isn't that Tom Brady hasn't committed to playing this year. The story is the Patriots get a little scared and the Patriots want to hear something from Brady. That's the story. But Schefter can't tell the story that way because that's kind of, you know, the point to keep that part of it concealed. I hope any of this makes sense. I'm starting to wonder whether or not it does. But none of it makes sense to me. Because if Tom Brady wants to retire, he's still going to retire. None of this shit means anything. He said he's going to play. He said he's not going to play. Don Yee says he's playing. Don Yee says nothing. The team thinks he may not play. The team thinks he'll play. I reported yesterday the Patriots currently think he will play. The Patriots think Brady and Gronk will play. But ultimately, if he retires, who gives a shit? He's retired. So, this is an example of the awkwardness that happens when a train that has been rolling for a generation approaches the station. It doesn't always approach the station in a graceful, easy way. Sometimes it approaches the station like the silver streak. And yes, that means I'm old. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say the silver streak, congratulations, you're young. Or you don't like old movies featuring Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, and Joe Clayburgh. Plus the guy that, whose name I can't remember and probably never knew who was the bad guy, whoever that guy is. All right. This is kind of five down territory, although I've spent way too much time talking about this Tom Brady thing. And I don't think I've really covered any ground. If you've given me 15 minutes of your time right now, I don't know what you've gotten out of it. And I don't have water here. So I'm going to have to muscle through this thing. I know. Thank you for your service. It'll pass. Speaking of pass, there are passers out there. I got to take a pause. I got to go get something to drink. And it did pass. Primarily because the beauty of this technology is you can stop. You can start again. I now have something to drink. All right. Sean Payton was on Dan Patrick's show today, and I thought what he said was fascinating for a variety of reasons. And what he said last week about this year's quarterback class was fascinating because typically you don't have these high-level evaluators speaking on the record regarding what they think about any draft prospects last year, this year, any year. So last week it was Payton telling Peter King of SI.com that 
he really doesn't see a great quarterback in this year's class. And I think he said, if any will be great, it will be Darnold. Which is intriguing because the Saints may be in the market for a quarterback, given that Drew Brees is 39 and is signed for another two years, I think, maximum. But he's basically on a year-to-year arrangement right now. What Sean Payton told Dan Patrick today was fascinating because he said that last year, if the Chiefs or whoever was picking the pick at number 10 had taken cornerback Marshawn Lattimore, who the Saints would take at number 11, if Lattimore had been taken at 10, the Chiefs obviously took Patrick Mahomes, the Saints would have taken Mahomes at 11. So if the Chiefs take Lattimore at 10 or the Bills stay put at 10 and take Lattimore, then the Saints take Mahomes at number 11, which shocked me that he was that candid. Very matter of fact. It wasn't like he was under a hot light. Maybe that's the wisdom of Dan's interviewing skill. Just conversation. Out it comes. And what makes it even more significant is Deshaun Watson was still on the board. They didn't take Deshaun Watson. And he didn't mention Deshaun Watson. He didn't say, well, I was considering Mahomes, Watson, and Lattimore, and I knew I was going to get one of those guys, and I got Lattimore. He specifically mentioned Mahomes. And he hinged it on Lattimore being the pick at 10. He said that if Mahomes and Lattimore were both available at 11, Lattimore would have still been the pick. If Lattimore would have been gone and Mahomes would have been gone, would Watson have been the pick? He didn't mention Watson at all. And that's fascinating to me for two reasons. First of all, Watson was great last year. Why wasn't he interested in Watson? Watson was proven to be great. And also, last year at the Super Bowl in Houston, we had interviewed Deshaun Watson, and Sean Payton was next up, and Sean Payton made a beeline for Watson and was fascinated with Watson, was smitten with Watson, and and, uh, you, you could see it. It, was right, it happened right in front of me. It was off the air, but it happened right in front of me. So, I guess my point is this. I got the impression he really liked Watson, and Watson's skills would justify having that regard for him. How good is Mahomes going to be? If both Andy Reid and Sean Payton, two of the great quarterback coaches of our day, had Mahomes as a better prospect than Watson... And we know Reed did because that's who Reed picked. Duh. How good is Mahomes going to be? And I, 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 I'm partial to that take because I think Mahomes is going to be great. Not based on anything he did at Texas Tech because I don't put a whole lot of stock in what happens at college because you you're dealing with an inherently inferior level of competition, and especially at quarterback, it's just hard to tell. But when I saw that throw in the preseason, when Mahomes was rolling right, and a guy was in his face, and a guy hit him as soon as he threw it, and he delivered it 50 yards on a rope, that's when I thought this guy's going to be great. And when the Chiefs had their midseason lull last year, I was all over the idea of just putting Alex Smith on the bench and going with Patrick Mahomes. So this comment from Peyton about Mahomes and the absence of that same level of regard for Deshaun Watson necessarily, coupled with the the Chiefs taking Mahomes when Watson was on the board, it just makes me fascinated, even more fascinated about what's to come this year for Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. 
third down. Something very interesting that was said today by 49ers GM John Lynch and how it connects to a development that came out over the weekend in the Reuben Foster case. Here's what Lynch said. The gravity of these charges has not been lost on us. Now, let me just clarify. Lynch is facing multiple charges arising from a domestic violence incident with a victim. And when I say alleged victim, that's not sarcastic. That's technically accurate because you have someone who is innocent until proven guilty and is entitled to that presumption. So it has to be alleged victim because victim implies that there was a crime. And if there were only two people involved and a crime happened, we know who the perpetrator was. So I know there are people out there who have a negative PFT and negative agenda toward me who want to look for anything I say and twist it and turn it. When I say alleged victim, I'm not in any way, shape or form making a comment about the victim. I am doing my best to respect the rights of the person who is indeed innocent until proven guilty, even though he ultimately may be guilty of sin. So the alleged victim has hired a lawyer. And the alleged victim, I'm getting ahead of myself here, the alleged victim allegedly was assaulted by Reuben Foster. Here's what Lynch said today. The gravity of these charges has not been lost on us. We take it extremely seriously. We do feel like patience is the right approach right now. We're going to learn things through this legal process. I do want to be abundantly clear that if these charges are proven true, if Reuben did indeed hit this young lady, he will not be part of this organization going forward. That's what Lynch said. Okay. That comment, when considered within the context of the development from over the weekend, the development I inadvertently mentioned out of sequence, that the alleged victim has hired a lawyer. This comment is very telling because the speculation that was offered up by Matt Barrows of the Sacramento Bee as it relates to the hiring of the lawyer. The speculation is the alleged victim may be exploring her options when it comes to not cooperating with prosecutors, refusing to testify. And a lot of these domestic violence cases require the victim, alleged victim, to testify in order to get a conviction because without the testimony of the alleged victim, if there's no other witness who can help overcome the very high standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, you can't get a conviction. That's why so many of these cases fall apart. It's one of the inherent flaws in the process. And on one hand, the alleged victim should be allowed to do whatever he or she wants to do. If you don't want to testify, if you don't want to go through that, that's your call. That's your right. You're not required to do it. You're not required to face down your accuser and run the risk of the system at some point failing you again. And that person having a chance to exact retribution or just the psychological toll, the emotional toll that arises from getting on the witness stand and, and talking about what happened to you. But that's how the justice system works in this country. No one testifies behind a curtain. No one testifies secretly. In order for the criminal justice system to work, somebody has to sit down in open court, raise the hand, while the other hand's on the Bible, swear to tell the truth, and then go, then go testify. 
to be scrutinized and the constitutional rights of the accused in order to ensure that people aren't wrongfully imprisoned the constitutional rights of the accused entail a right to confront that witness to sit there and stare at that witness while that witness testifies and when you're talking about a very complicated volatile violent relationship that that's where the wisdom of the american criminal justice system becomes questionable because in this setting i'm not sure that's the best way to get to the truth but if you found a country on the notion that it's better for 10 guilty people to go free than to have one person wrongfully imprisoned that's where you're going to have a little bit too much looseness in the joints of the justice system and that's relevant to reuben foster because And I want to be clear on this. The alleged victim has the right to not testify if she doesn't want to testify. This, this is a delicate and difficult situation for everyone involved. But the 49ers seem to be staking out territory in this maybe not so narrow aspect of all of the potential outcomes where they are going to sit back and wait. And... If the alleged victim never testifies, the legal process never generates the evidence necessary to show that, as John Lynch said, Reuben did indeed hit this young lady. So if you fold back, if you sit back and fold your arms and wait for the criminal justice system, the legal proceeding, the process to tell you what happened, there's a good chance the legal process is never going to tell you what happened which means you keep Reuben Foster. You see you see what's going on here? Whatever happened to just sitting Reuben Foster down and saying, hey, Reuben, did you do this? What happened to potentially contacting the alleged victim through NFL, not necessarily NFL security, but the entire mechanism that's in place under the personal conduct policy because they will interview alleged victims of domestic violence. They did in the Ezekiel Elliott case. What's wrong with the NFL coming to its conclusion? Let's take the 49ers out of it, because it's not on them to investigate this thing. Now, they can bring in Reuben Foster and say, Reuben, did you do this? They can lock him into a story. And then the 49ers can wait for the league office to either confirm or debunk Reuben Foster's story. Here's the problem. If the alleged victim tells Lisa Friel or anyone else from the league office... I'm not talking to you. What do you do? How do you ever debunk Reuben Foster? And if the alleged victim never testifies, if the alleged victim shuts it down and does not cooperate in any way, shape, or form with the criminal justice system, what do you do? What do you do? See, this exposes one of the gaping flaws, not just in the criminal justice system, but in the NFL's in-house justice system. Because if you have an alleged victim who is willing to cooperate with the NFL and tell her story via six different interviews. And I think that was the final number, six different interviews. Although for whatever reason, the NFL did not ask her to actually testify at, you know, the hearing itself. But if you have somebody who will cooperate with the NFL, it's a lot easier to determine that a violation of the personal conduct policy happened. If you have someone who won't be cooperating, how do you ever prove anything? And how are the 49ers ever in any position 
to conclude that Reuben, as John Lynch said, did indeed hit this young lady. See, it's not whether or not he did it. It's whether or not anyone can prove it. That's essentially the position the 49ers are taking. Now, if this guy was some slapdick at the bottom of the roster, he'd already be unemployed. We know that. The only reason the 49ers are trying to navigate their way through this minefield is they want the guy to play for them. They don't want this to ultimately get to the point where he's paid his debt to society, he's paid his debt to the league, and he's free and clear to be signed by someone, and the Rams, Seahawks, or Cardinals end up signing him. They don't want that. They don't have to face Reuben Foster once he's been rehabilitated, once he's learned his lesson, once he's atoned for his sins. But they also don't want to find out that Foster did it. And if there's a legitimate way for the 49ers to keep their head in the sand, despite whatever common sense may suggest, I mean, how else did this girl's eardrum get ruptured? How did it get to the point where he's prosecuted? How did it get to this point? Unless there's a damn good explanation as to why somebody is wrongfully and maliciously prosecuting Reuben Foster, there's probably enough out there to piece together a reasonable conclusion that, yeah, he did what he's accused of. But if the 49ers are going to say, well, if it comes out in the legal process that he hit this girl, then he's not going to be part of the team. Well, that, that may never come out. And that may be what the 49ers are trying to do here. That's how they're trying to finesse this. That's how they're trying to balance the PR that has dramatically changed the way the NFL handles domestic violence cases against the football objectives, which is having the best possible team, getting the most out of the players who are part of your nucleus, and you know, finding a way to give guys second chances. So I'm trying to do all this without... Look, I mean, I'm playing this as straight as I can. If the guy committed assault, if the guy indeed committed violence against the alleged victim in this case, there should be a consequence. I just don't like the idea that the 49ers seem to have found a loophole. If she doesn't cooperate with the NFL, if she doesn't cooperate with the criminal justice system, Reuben Foster is free and clear, regardless of whether or not he did it because they're hinging their own conclusion as to whether he did it, not on what they believe based upon talking to him, reading the police reports, you know, doing whatever they can do to investigate this on their own. I don't think they want to know that. They're content to say, well, hey, if the legal process proves he did it, then he won't be a 49er, because maybe at some level they realize the legal process is never going to prove it to the point where they'd be forced to cut ties with Reuben Foster. One more quick point. It's not really five down territory. It's four down territory. I want to get to your questions so I have enough time to do it. I don't want this thing to go on for an hour and a half, both for your sake and for mine. The Browns have that number one overall pick in the draft, and nobody knows what GM John Dorsey is going to do. And I think the Browns like that. I think the Browns relish the fact that if they can't fascinate us with their skills on the football field, they can fascinate us with the uncertainty as to what they're going to do with the first overall pick. I got that sense from Dorsey when I talked to him four weeks ago at the league meetings in Orlando. They like the fact that they're in a position where we're all waiting for the Browns to do something. Usually we're not waiting for the Browns to do anything except get the hell off of our TV so we can watch a real football team. I think they like the fact 
that they've captivated us and they're going to milk it. But ultimately what happens? Do they go with the safe pick and take Sam Darnold? Do they reach for the brass ring and go Josh Allen? Does the owner, who maybe sees a better version of Johnny Manziel and Baker Mayfield, does the owner start to make his views known? Because I, Look, I don't care what the duration of John Dorsey's contract is or what his buyout would be if he gets fired. Nobody wants to get fired. And the easiest way to not get fired is to do what the boss wants. And I know that Jimmy Haslam will never tell John Dorsey to take Baker Mayfield. But if John Dorsey's smart, and if Jimmy Haslam has a thing for Baker Mayfield, and he probably does, given the thing that he had for Johnny Manziel, dynamic, playmaker, exciting, etc., a guy who can really shake things up, a gunslinger, a guy who could be a franchise quarterback after all those non-franchise quarterbacks the Browns have had over the last 19 years. During their interactions, you know, Dorsey can say nothing at all about what he's going to do. Keep his cards close to the vest when he's talking to Haslam. But Haslam can say, how about that Baker Mayfield? What do you think of Baker Mayfield? I really like that Baker Mayfield. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but man, there's something about that Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield. And he was doing it four years ago with Manziel. He, he, he was telling a wide range of people what he thought about Johnny Manziel. He was all in with Manziel. And he may be all in with Mayfield. But see, he doesn't want to be characterized as meddling, even though he meddles. And he's not going to say to Dorsey, take Baker Mayfield. At least we don't think he will say that. He'll never admit that he did. But if you're Dorsey, how do you balance building the best possible football team you can build against keeping the guy happy who ultimately decides whether or not you remain employed? And whether or not you're going to get to hire your own coach? You know, I continue to see reports suggesting that the Haslams are all in with Hugh Jackson, which is astounding to me. One in 31. But if I'm Dorsey and I want to be in the good graces of ownership and I want to be able to steer ownership in the direction I want to steer them, maybe I throw them a bone from time to time. And maybe it is close enough. Allen, Darnold, Mayfield, who the hell knows? Who really knows what any of those guys are going to do? And if we want bold, yeah, Josh Allen's bold. Baker Mayfield's bold too. And what did Dorsey do last year with the Chiefs? They did bold, jumping from 27 to 10 to get Mahomes. But you know what? We'll know when we know. And it won't surprise me if at some point there's a report between now and Thursday, a firm report that the Browns are going to do something. And and it'll be it'll be couched with some sort of weasel words. Well, the Browns are expected to, or people within the organization believe. Because sometimes the GM... Or the coach, if the coach is the one with the GM powers, will put out false information. 2005, Nick Saban, first year with the Dolphins. He told people in the organization he was taking Braylon Edwards at number two and he took Ronnie Brown. He lied to people in the organization just to keep his true intentions secret. So maybe Dorsey 
Maybe Dorsey's trying to smoke out the rat. Maybe Dorsey's trying to figure out whether he can trust Hugh Jackson. Maybe Dorsey tells Hugh and no one else what he's going to do. Maybe he tells Hugh, I'm leaning Darnold. And then if a report comes out the Browns are leaning Darnold, there's another little piece of evidence Dorsey has to know whether or not he can trust Hugh. I don't know that he cares at this point. I, I think that Dorsey wants his own guy. I think he wanted his own guy the moment he walked through the door. And... I don't know how many wins Hugh Jackson has to have to continue to be the guy, but we've seen that before. In Detroit, Bob Quinn waited two years with Jim Caldwell before hiring the guy he would have hired right out of the gates. I don't know how much that helps your team when you delay the inevitable. And I don't know why the Haslams are compelled to keep a guy who went 0-16 when there were so many close games last year that at some point it's on the coach to not find a way through the weeds to get a win. And I say this as to Rod Marinelli. I say it as to Hugh Jackson. I say it as to any other coach who would go 0-16. If you fail to win a single game in an entire season, given parity, salary cap, the relative difference between the talent levels from one team to the next, if you can't win one out of 16 games, unfit to be an NFL head coach. Maybe a great coordinator, position coach, whatever. And Rod Marinelli's been very good with the Cowboys in recent years. But once you go 0-16 in today's NFL, unfit to be an NFL head coach. So that's where it stands for the Browns. And we'll know on Thursday night what they do. We'll have a mock draft on Tuesday, I think. I'll explain the mock draft more tomorrow once it's unveiled. Maybe we'll unveil it right after the PFTPM podcast. Or maybe we'll unveil it right before and I'll talk about it during, I don't know, I'll figure it out tomorrow. Time to answer your questions. And I'm being more subtle with the call for questions via Twitter. All I have today is 4 p.m. Eastern at PFTPM Posse, GIF of the bat sign, bat signal. Is it the, it's the bat signal, bat sign. Same, same thing. Tomato, tomato, who gives a shit? All right. So, and now you respond. You know. I'm proud. I'm not proud of this. First question from the PFTPM posse. How did you bowl on Saturday night? I really don't want to talk about it. I'll talk about it when I bowl well. And the thing about bowling, like, you can go and you just know right away if it's your night. You don't all of a sudden get hot while you're there. You're either good or you're not. And here's the problem I have. And I'm looking at my two thumbs side by side. My thumb is too big for a 12-pound ball. So now I have to go to the 14-pound ball. And here's the problem. When we first started going a month ago, like I was throwing the 9 and the 10 just to ensure that I wouldn't go into the gutter. I figure the lighter the ball, the better the chance I don't rocket it into the gutter. And somehow my thumb was fitting in those. And now there's no chance. And now my thumb has swollen to the point where it won't fit in a 12, so I had to move to a 14 This big giant pink ball, the house ball, the default color for the house ball at 14 is pink. Not that I have a problem with pink. You just would think that, you know, the 14-pound ball, since it's one click shy of 15, it would maybe be blue. You know, it's a heavy ball is what I'm saying. Anyway, my thumb won't fit in the 12. So I got to carry this big giant pink ball that is 14 pounds that I can't throw straight, so I sucked on Saturday night. And now I don't want to go back, but I probably will. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if they like keep ice on my thumb so it fits in a smaller ball or if I have to start, you know, doing some more or any weight training so I can throw this giant 14 pound pink ball around. I don't know what to do. 
because I can't throw the 14-pound ball, but my thumb won't fit in any other ball. So I'm kind of stuck. That's where my bowling game is right now. And I got a 155 a couple of weeks ago. I got a 155. I've had a 143. The last time I went, I had three games that were in the neighborhood of 120. 117, 122, 125. I didn't crack 100 the other night. I don't know what the hell the problem was. Oh, I know what the problem was. My thumb no longer fits in the 12-pound ball that I was comfortably throwing well. And I got this 14-pound ball that I can't throw. So, and I was determined to stick with the 14-pound ball because I have this weird thought that if I stick with the 14-pound ball, I'll get better at throwing the 14-pound ball. We'll find out. I may give up on bowling before I get to the point where I reach my maximum level of achievement with the 14-pound ball. And now what's going to happen is my thumb's going to keep swelling. I'm going to have to start throwing the 15-pound ball. I don't know what's normal. Like, 15, the 14-pound ball is heavy. It is a, and 15, like, what's the difference when it's that heavy? What's one pound? Who cares? So anyway, I suck at bowling. Terry Gensler wants to know if I can tell the Dirk Cutter story. I have delayed this because I've been waiting for a time when I have enough time to do it right. What the hell? I'll do it. And as I start down this path, let me just say this. None of these communications I'm about to share were off the record. And it's not like Dirk Cutter is going to get any more upset with me than he already was. So what the hell? Here's what happened. Dirk Cutter becomes the head coach of the Buccaneers in early 2016. Lovey Smith was the head coach after his second season, his first with Jameis Winston. Team was pretty good. Team wasn't horrible. But Lovey Smith is out and Dirk Cutter's in. And this all happened at a time when Dirk Cutter was starting to generate interest, potentially. Who knows what's true and what's not true? But people were thinking maybe Dirk Cutter would get head coaching interviews with other teams. The Dolphins, for example. Because Mike Tannenbaum, the executive VP of football operations, had represented Dirk Cutter when Tannenbaum was an agent before he got back into football. The thinking was, hey, all right, they're looking for a coach. Dirk Cutter did a good job with Jameis Winston. You get Dirk Cutter to Miami. I can't remember who else was looking at the time. There was at least, well, obviously at least one other vacancy, but there there was one other vacancy that, that Cutter's name, I think, was being mentioned for. But Miami was the big one. I think maybe... I wouldn't have been San Francisco. Yeah, it was San Francisco. They had a vacancy every damn year for like three straight years. Yeah, San Francisco, I think, was one where his name may have popped up. But the thinking was, the suspicion was, that maybe this was an inside job. That maybe... The Buccaneers only fired Lovey Smith once they knew that Dirk Cutter was going to stay and take the job. And that's not an unreasonable suspicion when you consider what happened in 2009. John Gruden got fired as coach. Bruce Allen got fired as GM. And within a matter of days, like not many days, like maybe two or three days, Raheem Morris became the head coach and Mark Dominic became the GM. And back at that time, the Rooney Rule did not yet apply to GM positions, so Dominic could instantly be hired, and Raheem Morris, a minority candidate, could instantly be hired under the terms of the Rooney Rule. And more importantly, they could go to both of them and say, do you want these jobs? Hey guys, here's what we have going on. We're going to throw John Gruden and Bruce Allen overboard, literally, because they got that big pirate ship down there. 
we're going to throw them overboard and we're going to give you the jobs. Do you want these jobs? We need to know that you want these jobs or we're going to have to revisit our plan before we implement it. Are you good with this? Is this good? You want these jobs? Yeah, we want these jobs. All right. See you later, John Gruden. See you later, Bruce Allen. So we've seen the rubber band get stretched by the Buccaneers organization. And, and look, plenty of businesses do things this way. Before you throw away the bird in the hand, you make sure that the, the two in the bush you're looking for, or one in the bush, or whatever, whatever, whatever saying, whatever works, before you fire the person you have, you make sure that the replacement is on board. Otherwise, maybe you don't fire the person you have. Maybe you stick with the person you have for another year if you can't get the replacement. Because I think from the Buccaneers' perspective, it's reasonable to wonder, did they choose having Dirk and not Lovey over having Lovey and not Dirk? And if they're going to lose Dirk anyway, then maybe you keep Lovey Smith. So how do you make this work when obviously you're going to have to comply with the Rooney rule. You can't just hire Dirk Cutter the same way you instantly hired Raheem Morris. So Dirk Cutter's got to be on board with this. You got to know that he wants the job. So some way, somehow you have to have a conversation with Cutter along the lines of hypothetically Dirk, if this job becomes available, would you be interested in becoming the successor to Lovey Smith? And that's a fair question to ask him because there's a chance that he says, I am very loyal to Lovey Smith. He's the one who hired for me, me for this job. I, I do not want to replace him. I, I decline to benefit from the fact that he's losing this job. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. No, I, I'm sorry. I'm not interested in the job. I would rather go and be considered to be a head coach or an offensive coordinator somewhere else. So because of all that, that gives you the background as to what was happening at the time. There was a, a theory out there that... It was an inside job, just like it was in 2009. The cutter knew he was getting the job. They checked the box under the Rooney rule so Cutter could take the job. And, you know, that that thought was out there. And I didn't expect Dirk Cutter to admit to it. My goodness. He's not going to admit to it. But I wanted to get his thought on the fact that people were speculating, rumor-mongering, whatever, that it was an inside job. So Dirk Cutter appeared on PFT Live. And I said something along the lines of, how do you react when people say that this was essentially an inside job and you knew that you were getting Lovey Smith's job before Lovey Smith was fired? It was probably more articulate than that. It was probably better phrased than that. But I asked the question and I thought he gave a very good answer. He said, well, I would say that's BS. And he said all the things you would expect him to say. But you know what? I thought he needed a platform to say it because everybody thought it. So why not have a chance to address it? Now, you know, here's how these things work. You don't tell the people ahead of time what you're going to ask them. And I guess if I had told him that I was going to ask that question and I had known it was going to piss him off, then maybe I, w I don't know what I would have done. I don't know what I would have done. Or maybe I would have explained, look, I got to ask the question. I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that there was an inside job, but people think there was. So why not address it? So anyway, I do the interview and I think it goes well. I never heard any negative feedback from Cutter, from the Buccaneers, anything. So fast forward to the end of March, we go to Boca Raton for the annual league meetings. Every Monday night at the league meetings, there's a reception, dinner, open air thing where, you know, you mill about, you have a few drinks and you have some food and you talk to people and, you know, it's, it's very loose. It's very relaxed. People tend to get along in that setting. Spouses are there. You know, it's, it's very, very casual. It's as casual 
and eclectic a group as you ever see when it comes to the NFL. You got the media intermingled with people from the league office, from the teams. It, it's really a, a unique special night. Once per year, everybody kind of sets aside their baggage and they all get along, right? Well, <laughs> maybe not. Here's what happened. I come through the main entrance to this outdoor big pool area where they were having the event and they're handing out these drinks these big giant drinks that it's essentially it's like electric antifreeze this blue liquid in the drinks and they're handing them out like we can you please help me out here we're trying to move these damn things nobody wants these take so yeah i'll take one of them so i'm carrying around this this hideous blue beverage in a clear glass and, uh, you know, you, you you see people you know and see people you want to talk to. And uh, I see Dirk Cutter. It's like, hey, you know, we had a good interview with Dirk Cutter. I want to go say hi to Dirk. I like Dirk. Let's go say hi to Dirk. And as soon as I walk over to Dirk, pow. He didn't hit me, but verbally, pow. You asked me about whether or not it was an inside job, and that's a bullshit question, and you knew what you were doing, and I'm never coming on your show again. I'm paraphrasing here, but I think I'm cut. I think you get the point. He was all over me, all over me. And I walked right into it. I mean, that's, I'm just like, I, I I, mean, if I'd have had any idea that the guy was upset with me, I would have walked the other way, especially in that setting, right? If I know somebody's mad at me, I'm not going to tempt fate in that setting. But I'd like to even think in that setting, people can find a way to be civil and friendly and set aside their differences just for that one night, just for appearances sake. But he was all over me. And. I mean, at first, like, you know, and here's what I've done in the past. When someone's been mad at me in newsflash over the last 18 years, there are times when people connected to teams or the league have been mad at me. I'll take it. I'll hear them out. I want to hear their perspective. Maybe we can find a middle ground. And typically what happens is the person appreciates the fact that I let them yell and scream at me. And trust me, I have been yelled and screamed at many times before. And I always take it. And I let them get it out. And then when they're done... I try to explain my perspective. And Dirk is the one person in all these years where he just wasn't hearing any of it. He was not, I, I would state why I said what I said, and he did not, He was not buying it. He wasn't hearing it. And it never resolved itself. That was the end of it. I'll never come on your show again. And I hate you. Basically, didn't say he hates me, but, you know, I got the point. I got the point. And, and like at one point, like I think my wife started to stray over to the conversation and I think she realized, well, I'm, once she heard a little bit of what was going on, she went the other way. It just wasn't the setting for it. And see, I went from being like feeling very guilty about it. Like I had asked this question that horribly offended the guy and I was oblivious to the fact that I offended him. And when something like that happens, you go back and you ask, like, is my entire system screwed up? Like, usually when I ask an offensive question, I know I'm asking an offensive question. I'm doing it because I want to offend someone. I don't do that very often, especially not in my show. I pride myself on my show that I treat guests on the show like guests in my home. But I think it was a fair question. It's something that a lot of people were talking about. A lot of people were thinking. And I thought I gave him a great opportunity to address it. And he did. So. Anyway. I went from feeling bad about it to getting a little bit pissed about it because it really wasn't the place for him to attack me the way that he did. I clearly went up to him not to argue with him. I went up to him to say hello to him and meet him and shake his hand. So, look, okay, fine. 
I, I accidentally pissed him off, but there's a point where you just got to let it go. And I don't care. It's been two years. We haven't asked him to be back on the show. I joke about it from time to time. We had Jason Light on this year, and I said to Nelson Luis, the PR director for the Bucks, oh, when's, when's, uh, when's Dirk coming by? So that's fine. Yeah, I, and look, I mean, it is what it is, right? But that's the Dirk Cutter story. And that's the only time, the only time that after getting chewed out, by a coach, a GM, anyone connected to the NFL, that, that after getting chewed out, I was unable to persuade the person who was chewing me out to understand where I'm coming from, to reach the middle ground. You know, some of my better sources have developed over time from the people who initially were pissed off at me. So this one, it just wasn't happening. And I have a feeling based upon other conversations I've had with people in the media that, you know, I'm not the aberration that, that, that Dirk tends to get a little bit too excitable about things. And, uh, you know, he's mad at people in Tampa now because they were talking about John Gruden taking over the Buc- Buccaneers. But the truth is, if Mark Davis hadn't paid John Gruden 10 million a year, Gruden would have been hired by the Buccaneers to be their head coach. So I guess I can say that without worrying about doing further damage to my relationship with Dirk Cutter because there is no relationship to damage. That's the Dirk Cutter story. Next question. At Jake Heinzen, is the transition from Dom Capers to Mike Pettin going to be undervalued all year? The Packers have a lot of talent and still one of the worst defenses recently. And Mike Pettin has habitually had a top 10 defense. Look, the, uh, so far, the the reviews are good. You know, from time to time, you get complaints about that Mike Pettin, Rex Ryan type of a defense. It's a little too complicated. But, man, exotic blitzes, drives, offense is crazy. And... For too long, the Packers have been content to be good enough. Good enough to have a great regular season record. Good enough to get to the playoffs. Good enough to get to the championship game. I feel like now the Packers are are no longer as complacent as they've been when it comes to, is it good enough? It's not good enough when you have one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time and you only have one Super Bowl appearance. And it's now eight years since the Packers made it to the Super Bowl. At Undead Number 9, despite your report of six or seven PFTPM Posse members, some of us have listened to every podcast despite not asking questions, mostly because I can't think of a good enough question to ask so I don't waste your time. I love the honesty. But don't give up. Undead Number 9, you you may eventually have a, a very good question to ask. Steph Boyardee wants to hear the Dirk Cutter story. You got it. And, you know... Now that I've told it, well, I don't know what, I don't, you know what, it is what it is, right? I, I don't, I don't think I said anything inappropriate or improper. I told the story. That's the story. Dirk, Dirk Cutter is uh, presumably still mad at me from what I think was a, a mostly innocuous question, perfunctory question that, and I'm surprised nobody else asked him. I'm assuming I'm not the only interview he did. How, how could no one else have asked him the same question? Maybe they all did and he's as pissed at them as he is at me. Scott Harger, who has a hotter seat, Adam Gase or Todd Bowles? I think it's Todd Bowles. I mean, Gase has at least taken his team to the playoffs. And last year, look at all the hardships, external hardships that Gase and the Dolphins had to deal with. I think Bowles has the hotter seat than Adam Gase. 
at Big Blue Thoughts. Thoughts on the Giants' schedule. Big fan of the show and proud member of the PFTPM Posse. Well, look, I'll be straight with you. I mean, when the schedule came out last week, the Giants' schedule was not one that I uh, paid a whole lot of attention to because I don't know what to expect from the Giants this year. So why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? Since you asked nicely, I'm in the process of accessing the Giants' schedule if my internet will cooperate with me. And uh, I'll give you some quick thoughts on the Giants' schedule. All right? You asked, I answer. They opened at home against the Jaguars. And look, I'm not going to predict wins and losses, especially in the months of November and December when teams are dramatically different. But they opened at home against the Jaguars, and Tom Coughlin is going to want nothing more than to beat the Giants right out of the gates. The Giants have done well in Dallas. That's where they are week two. They stay in Texas for week three against the Texans. The Saints come to town the following week. The Giants go to Carolina. The Eagles come to town. The Giants go to Atlanta. Washington comes to town, and then they get a bye after eight games. Man, that's going to be a tough first half of the schedule. That's going to be a tough one. And I could see two and six, three and five as very, very possible for this team in the first half. Now, again, I'm not going to pick wins and losses. I'm just conceptually two and six, three and five based upon that schedule. And anything better than that, four and four or better, they got to be feeling pretty good about where they are. Pretty good going into the second half of the schedule. So if they can come out of the first half at least four and four, Maybe these Giants can surprise some people. And remember, last year, five of the playoff teams in the NFC were teams that had not made it the year before, which means the opening is there for a team like the Giants to get back in. At CZ Wald, is there one of the well-thought-of high draft picks that just screams potential bust to you? Well, look, I really liked talking to Josh Allen the other day, and I like that he's working to fix his footwork that he admitted was jacked up at college. And he's very earnest about issues with inaccuracy, and he doesn't like the fact that people bring it up as much as they do. He thinks it's blown out of proportion. But ultimately, you got to be able to deliver an accurate football. And if he can't find a way to get the ball in windows that get tighter at the next level, and we saw Deshaun Watson last year. You know, I was concerned about his interceptions. Not overly concerned because... When the level increased of his competition, his performance increased. And that's what happened when he got to the NFL. What happened? The windows got smaller, and he started putting the ball in the smaller windows. Josh Allen's the one that concerns me. I think it could be great, but I also think there's a chance that the wheels come off. And a lot of it depends upon you know that baptism he gets. Does he, does he get a chance to sit and wait and learn? Or does he get thrown right into it? And if he gets thrown right into it, does he get potentially ruined? We hear that all the time. I remember that was the concern with John Elway when he was a rookie. And Dan Reeves, was Dan Reeves the head coach? I think it was Reeves. He didn't want to ruin him. So you can ruin a guy if he just gets mentally and physically overwhelmed. You, you may, I remember that we talked about hockey and ice skating. First time we went ice skating, I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by everything about it. All the people, the noise, how the skates felt on my feet. There was no chance to even begin to figure out how to skate. It freaked me out, and I never learned how to skate after that. So, not that 
there's a similarity, but there is. I mean, if it is so overwhelming that it breaks you and you're like, oh, screw this, it could be hard to come back from. At the Impact 99, which current starter would you be the most surprised to see their team draft a quarterback this year? So if... I see what you... I think I, think I get the question. Which team would it most surprise me if they draft a quarterback given that they, they have a starter, right? Let me look at the list here real quick. I mean, I guess like if, you know, like if the Texans took Lamar Jackson and they visited with Mar- Lamar Jackson, that, that would surprise me. You know, if, if the Vikings would take Mason Rudolph with the 30th pick in the draft, that would surprise me. Because even though Kirk Cousins only has a three-year deal, apparently the, you know, the Vikings are on board with Cousins indefinitely. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if the Raiders drafted a quarterback because you can say all the right things about Derek Carr, but the bottom line is that Derek Carr may not be the guy that John Gruden wants long-term. He's not going to say it on his way through the door. But that would surprise a lot of people. It wouldn't surprise me. At the Impact 99, what's the normal menu for watching games in the barn? You know, it varies. It varies. It varies on mood. We get, we get a lot of Pizza Hut pizza. Got to be in the right mood for that. There's another local establishment called Chunky's. Family member family members own it and run it. Very good subs at Chunky's. Good pizza as well. What else do we get down there? There used to be a barbecue place that was open, but they closed it, so no more barbecue. Yeah, but usually at wings, the, 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 during football season, we'll, we'll get like four or five different types of wings from three or four different places locally. The, the wings are big during football season. For whatever reason, we're not as big into the wings when it's not football season. But uh, it, it's not it's not high-level fare. It's not gourmet dining, but it's good, you know, stuff that you want to eat when you're watching a game, whether it's football, hockey, UFC, whatever. At the Impact 99, which draft prospect did you most enjoy talking with personality-wise in the last few weeks? Derwin James has been my favorite. There's just something magnetic and electric about that guy. I, I, I liked him the most. Very natural, very loose. A little bit of an edge, a little swag, but I like that. you got to have that if you're going to be a defensive back, especially a Florida State defensive back. But I really like Derwin James. I'm looking forward to talking to Josh Rosen. You know, because I, I like Josh Rosen. He Josh Rosen is getting a bad rap because he's authentic and he's genuine and he speaks his mind. I like that. I'm looking forward to talking to Josh Rosen. I, w- I want to hash out some of these issues with him. Why does he think that people react to him the way they do? How's he going to change? Is he going to change? And I'm going to ask for his views on a few different issues. That, I'm looking forward to that when you'll hear it tomorrow on the PFTPM podcast. Recliner QB asks, why would the new Packers GM not make it a point to reach out to Aaron Rodgers by now, his star player and face of the franchise? Well, it's one thing to reach out to him. It's another thing to to let the quarterback complain about this, that, or the other thing. And I, I think that right or wrong, the Packers are not going to empower Aaron Rodgers to, to be anything more than the quarterback of the team. If they were, They would have gotten his input before they fired Alex Van Pelt. They would have gotten his input before they cut Jordy Nelson. And I said last week, look, Aaron Rodgers isn't being treated any differently than any other quarterback. But you can make the argument that if you want your quarterback to essentially be quasi-management and be an extension of the coaching staff, maybe you should include your quarterback in these decisions. At a minimum, give him the courtesy of a heads up. Treat him like management. You want him to act like management. You need to treat him like management or something about it just doesn't make sense 
at Black 88 Elite, are the Eagles keeping Foles with the new deal in place? No, no. Listen, this new deal, all it is is a $2 million raise, plus the opportunity to get paid accordingly if he has to play and if he plays at a high level. I'd be interested to see all the incentives, all the numbers, what it takes to earn the various amounts. This is just a $2 million gift for winning the Super Bowl, plus some type of insurance to pay him if they end up needing him this year. If there's something with Carson Wentz or if he gets injured again, then Nick Foles earns some money on his way out the door. But I think next year he's out. There's an option held by both sides, which means either side can say this contract is over and I'm moving on. And I assume next year Nick Foles will say this contract is over and I'm moving on. At Recliner QB, will the Bengals become big free agency spenders after Mike Brown is no longer running the show? I'm not ready to come to that conclusion because it will be Katie Blackburn, his daughter, and Troy Blackburn, her spouse, running the show, and they've been running the show the same way Mike Brown has run the show. And, And the Bengals have been extremely careful with their money, and they have been making money. But because they don't generate the kind of revenue that other teams do locally, they've got to be careful about what they spend. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. Sergio D, how about a draft lottery for the non-playoff teams? Picks one for 20 up for grabs. And look, I don't have a problem with that. I've been suggesting a full and complete draft lottery. Maybe you do a two-tiered draft lottery. And and what I when I say lottery, I mean a true lottery. No weighted balls. No extra balls if you're the worst team. One through 20, everybody's got the same chance. And you sort them out that way. 21 through 32, everybody else in that group. I think that's fair. I like that better because then look, the non-playoff teams get a little extra consideration and it's not like you're going to aspire to be a non-playoff team. Like, yeah, we got a chance to make the playoffs, but I'd rather be in the pool for the first overall pick. I'd rather have a one in 20 shot at having the first overall pick. Now you're going to, you're going to do your best to make it to the playoffs. I like that. I like that. Good idea. Good enough to steal. At On Tour Forever. How much do you think past draft results influence current draft thinking? For example, the Texans not drafting Derek Carr because of his brother David. Would the Jets not take Darnold because of a bad experience with Mark Sanchez? I think that's part of it from the PR perspective. And look, these decisions have a PR component to them. And I think that's more when ownership gets involved because ownership is influenced by a lot of different factors, including what ownership is hearing from PR. But... You know, the the Texans not taking Derek Carr because of David Carr, I think that's real. And, um, you know, would the would the Jets shy away from a Sam Darnold because of Mark Sanchez? I, I think those are very real considerations. Because what happens is, if the guy you take the second time is a bust and there's any logical tie to the guy you took the last time around, even if it's completely implausible and nonsensical, it's still the kind of thing that you're going to have to hear it and you're never going to hear the end of it. And I do think that, that those bad experiences, if there's any tenuous connection, those bad experiences color what happens moving forward. That's a good observation. At Recliner QB, why is PFTPM not coming to Dallas for the draft? Also, hashtag PFTAM Posse. That's the PFT live show. Look, it's, it's just too much of a pain to go to the draft and you got to find a spot to do the show. And how much do you really get from it? You know, the access to the player is very difficult to make it work. We're, we're getting access to them 
anyway. And yeah, maybe we'd get face-to-face access, but it, it just, I did it a few times. We had fun in New York City when we did it. I think it's too hard to take it to a new city to set up everything. There are so many different threads that all have to come together at the same time. It just makes more sense to be home for the draft. It makes more sense for me to be here. I can do this aspect of the job, all the other things I do. Afternoon podcast, the the updates at PFT, I can do it all better if I'm here. I've tried it both ways, and it would be different if NBC was broadcasting the draft, obviously, but it, it just makes more sense to do it here. For Super Bowl, it makes sense to be on site. For the league meetings, it makes sense to be on site. Scouting combine makes sense to be on site. For the draft, it doesn't because you don't get the same access. The draft picks are getting pulled in 50 different directions, and uh, we've made it work before. We made it work before when we interviewed guys after they were picked. We had a room at Radio City Music Hall for a couple of years, and that worked well. And then we had a situation where we were talking to guys before the draft. That was great, 2014 with Manziel and Mike Evans and a few other guys. But uh, it, it just once they started taking it on the road, it makes much more sense to stay at home base and, and uh, focus on it that way. And, and I think we can do a better job of getting more people – more access, more analysis, more everything by not adding that element of taking the show on the road. At Terry Gensler 14, how's your campfire sunburn? It's it's uh, I'm starting to peel. We, we had a bonfire. We, we've got a we've got like a a normal fire pit that you can sit around it and do marshmallows or whatever. But then we, we've got like this concrete block thing that my my nephew built down near the woods for you know, bigger things that need to be burned. And we got a bunch of mulch uh, and, and the mulch came on pallets and the pallets had to be burned. And we burned those bastards on Saturday night. And man, it was hot. And the coals there, I put the photos on Instagram. That's what he's referring to. Cause we got, we, we, I got about five seconds of video of the fire and you could hear it crackle loudly coming across the video. It was hot. It was intense. And I took a picture of the coals and man, they were scary. It was like looking into the mouth of hell. So that, that maybe that messed me up. That's my excuse. Hanging around that fire messed me up for bowling. Maybe my thumb swell even more and it wouldn't fit inside that 12-pound ball. Terry Gensler, 14. Do you like the fact that Brandon Brooks admitted he restructured his contract to help pay foals? Does that break a locker room code or is an example of how good the Philly locker room is? And I, I don't know that any one guy redoes his deal to help another guy. Everybody has their own cap number and there's different things you do. It may be that Brooks was the one that was most close in time to Foles so you can draw a line to it. I Look, Foles needed to, he, he deserved a little bit of a bump for what he did last year. So he got $2 million. So good. He deserved it. I... I, I, and, and it's good that if guys are willing to restructure their deals. Now, I don't know if he took less money or did a simple restructuring. I saw that there was a restructuring. Restructuring can mean a guy took less money or it can mean a guy just moved money around. And typically it means taking money that you're due to make this year now and spreading the cap hit in future years. It doesn't cost you anything to do it that way. So I don't know how much to read into it because I don't know all the details. But, you know, the bottom line is they had to do something to take care of Nick Foles. And it's good they finally did. And maybe he makes more if he plays this year. Maybe he doesn't. Either way, unless Carson Wentz completely implodes in 2018, Foles is going to be elsewhere in 2019. 
Recline a QB, would Dez be better off waiting until training camp starts at this point with his injury history? I, I don't think so, because I don't know how many injuries you're going to have in the offseason program, although they happen. I think it's important to go to a new team, start to learn the offense, start to get comfortable with the quarterback, with the other players, with the coaching staff. I think it, it makes sense for him to wait until after the draft, and uh, and then we see where it goes from there. I probably should wrap this up. We've been going for a while here. Reverend Markworth, besides football books, what else do you like to read? Fiction, history, etc. I, I, you know, I go through stretches where I read a lot of things, and and I like uh, I like nonfiction. But you know, a, a good novel will catch my attention early, and I won't be able to put it down until I'm done. But you know, I've 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 sputtered with a couple of novels recently, a couple of Stephen King novels that just couldn't hold my interest. I tried Mr. Mercedes, that was a couple of years ago. That one I just couldn't do it. Uh, what's the other one? There's another one that's more recent that partially set in West Virginia, and that just did nothing for me. Um, Ready Player One. I read that, and I really enjoyed that. That was that was one of the books I'd read on the plane last year, to the point where I I, I want to see the movie, but I don't know if the movies the movie may already be gone. The movies are out, and then they're like gone, and the next thing you know, they're on iTunes or or uh, Netflix or whatever. So uh, Ready I, I Ready Player One was a very creative concept. I, I enjoyed that. I probably should wrap this up. There's a lot here, though. A lot here. I appreciate your questions. Hmm. At the great Corn Florio, when is Aaron Rodgers going to be released from the Packers? Is he worth a first-round trade? He's not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. They got him for four more years. Two more years on his current contract, two years of franchise tag. He'd be 38 at the point where he would otherwise hit the open market. I think they'll get it worked out, and I think that he will stick around. At Undead number nine, what was the first Madden football game you ever played? Mine was the first Super Nintendo version. I got it on Sega Genesis. And I remember Joe Montana football. I I prefer Joe Montana football to Madden football, especially the early versions of Madden football. But Joe Montana never went anywhere. They had like a stupid sports talk version and they completely changed the engine and it just wasn't any good. The original Joe Montana football I liked, and actually you can find it online and you can play it every once in a while. I have it bookmarked. Every once in a while I'll just screw around and play the old Joe Montana football. But uh, uh, Madden 92, 93, that's when I really enjoyed it the first time. It was either 92 or 93, one of those two. And, And then it went through a period where it never really seemed to get all that much better, but you played it because it was the best football game available, although it wasn't great. And then the 2K series came along and it's like, wow, this is great. And uh, it's just the last few years I've really appreciated Madden like never before. I really enjoy it. I, 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 I try to work out every day, and I play it when I work out. It's the only way I can get through that 45 to 60 minutes of cardio without constantly staring at the clock. And, uh, and, and the Madden game now I really enjoy. Could it be better? Sure. Are there ways it can improve? Absolutely. But I, I really enjoy it now. And, uh, yeah, it goes back to 1991-92 with Madden 92 or Madden 93 when I first played it. And first enjoyed playing it. I probably should go. There's, uh, let's see, let's see. What else do we have here? Victorious, how real are the concerns for Baker Mayfield actually falling in Johnny Manziel's footsteps? I, I don't think I don't think that, that they're real. I, I don't see Mayfield as a guy who's not going to take football seriously. I don't see him as a guy who's going to choose partying over football. I don't see him as a guy who's not going to put in the work. I think he's driven to be great. He's proven time and again that he can overachieve and exceed expectations. I look forward to talking to him this week. I think we're due to talk to him at some point on Wednesday. So either he'll either be in the PFT PM podcast on Wednesday or we'll have him on PFT Live 
on Thursday. There's a lot of questions here. I hate to not answer every one of these. I really do. But uh, I got to go. We've been going for too long. Thanks for your time. We'll try this again tomorrow. Thank you for being a member of the PFTPM Posse. Thank you for your patronage of the podcast and ProFootballTalk.com. We'll talk to you on Tuesday.